Genesis 12 is where we will be. Let's pray. Good to have you here this morning. Father, thank you for who you are and what you have revealed to us about yourself and for all that you are doing in the world. And we pray, Father, always that we would have good understanding of the Bible so that we might use it properly. And we ask that help today in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Uh, Let's just begin in verse number 8 of Genesis 12. I've called the series Foundations. My original plan was to work through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but we'll continue on a little bit into the life of Abraham. Haven't seen her come in yet, Rick, but I think it's entirely possible that she dropped you at the door and left. Yeah, that's why she keeps dropping you off at different locations. But <laughs> All right, let's start verse number 8. And so anyway, the subject matter of verse number 8 is Abraham. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarah his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say this is his wife and they will kill me but they will save thee alive. Say I pray thee thou art my sister that it may be well with me for thy sake and my soul shall live because of thee. And it come to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commanded her before Pharaoh commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why dost thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why sayest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. 
And he went on his journey from the south even to Bethel under the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai under the place of the altar which he had made there at the first and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And we'll stop there. And you'll notice that the section begins and ends with Abram at an altar calling to the Lord. And uh, so that's, I, I think that's kind of the book end of the story that, that we, are, we are oriented to some extent by Abram's departure from the altar and by Abram's return to the altar. The, the story is told to us, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, but the story is told to us without any commentary by the narrator as to some of the things that we might find questionable or questions that we might like to have answered. And, and as, we, as we've been doing, we're just going to kind of walk through the story, which obviously we've just read, and then we will come back and try and get at the significance of the story. Why is this here, and what does it mean for us? So when we come into the story in verses 9 and 10, right, Abram has moved farther south into the promised land. Uh, Israel, of course, is a, geographically a very small nation. It is longer than it is wide. Um, and Abraham has entered into it from the north, uh, coming up across through the Tigris River area and down. And he's come into the land that way, and he is moving now <clears throat> southward to the land. He is north of Jerusalem, um, and there is a famine in the land. We are told that there is a famine in the land. And because of the famine, Abram, in verse number 12, then moves to Egypt, where evidently there is not a famine. We're not told. Neither are we told any of the factors that enter into Abraham's decision apart from the famine. And there are, well, his son Isaac will face the same dilemma and talk to the Lord about that dilemma. But there's no recorded interaction as to between Abraham and God about his decision-making. I think, I will argue, that that is significant in that Abraham is making the decision in the absence of the Lord's direction. In verses 11 through 13, as they approach Egypt, Abraham asks Sarah to lie about their relationship. And he provides his rationale, okay, which we can read. And I do want to read it because I want to take just a minute here and try and come up with what I think is a plausible explanation for the lie. Not a defensible one, but a plausible. Why would Abraham lie about this? And, or to put it this way, in what way will the lie protect him? He explains to us why he wants to tell the lie. Okay? Verse 11, it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he sent unto Sarah's wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. You're an attractive woman. I know it. Everybody in Egypt will know it. <clears throat> Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say, this is his wife. That will be their logical conclusion. <clears throat> and they will kill me and they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me, 
for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. So Abram asks Sarah to do something specifically, and by the way, we'll know this, we'll get to this later on in the passage. There is a technical sense in which she is his sister, because she is his half-sister. But the entirety of the story is that she is his wife. And Abram says, right, I mean, we just read it. Abram says, when we get into Egypt, all the Egyptians are going to know that you're an attractive woman. Assuming that you are my wife, they will kill me. And so what I'm asking you to do is to tell them you are my sister. Which leads us then to the question that is not answered in the text. Right? We have Abraham's logic behind the lie, but we don't have any explanation as to how this will preserve his life. So this is complete speculation, folks. Right? And I, just, I mean, I just want to make that disclaimer at the outset. It is complete speculation. It is not original to me, but I think it is probably the most valid explanation that there is. Presenting herself as his sister would give Abraham strength in a bargaining situation. That if the Egyptians are attracted to Sarah as they are, the normal course and custom would be, because it is not America, folks, and nobody has ever yet heard of Hallmark. Right? The way that this works is this. You purchase the sister from the oldest male authority, whether that would be dad or whether that would be the brother. So that the Egyptians, endeavoring to be somewhat, and this will be another part of the story, endeavoring to be somewhat moral relative to the culture of their world, will try to negotiate with Abraham to buy Sarah which will give Abraham the leverage to raise the price on Sarah very high, to to disagree to any terms, and thereby protect himself. Whereas, he is greatly concerned that if they just assume that he is the husband, they will just kill him. They will not try to buy her from her husband. They will just kill the husband and take the wife. Now, again, that is pure speculation. That, That is not stated in the text of Scripture. But I think, there is, I think that it is plausible that that is what Abraham would have. This is one of those things, folks, right, where within a culture you don't need to explain it, but to people who are not in that culture you do need to explain it. Because um, it's, right, <clears throat> I mean, in, in the strictest of homes in, in Christianity, Young men secure the permission from dad to date and to marry. But in no part of our culture, our culture, American culture, rooted in Christianity, uh, in no part of that do we, do we purchase our wives. Uh, we, just, we just don't do that. That's just not a part of what we do. But it was part of Abraham's world. So anyway, that's just speculation. Don't know that. But <clears throat> I think that that's entirely plausible. The whole thing comes unraveled when Pharaoh enters into the picture. If our speculate, if my speculation is right, or even if it's not, Pharaoh is not 
in any way thinking about negotiating with anybody for a woman that he wants. His princess go, hey, <clears throat> there's a new attractive woman in town. And Pharaoh goes, I will take her. And so he does and brings her into his home. To this extent, folks, <clears throat> right? If you look at verse number 16, and he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels, Pharaoh did do right by Abraham as culture demanded. He enriched him greatly in exchange for his sister, which is what Pharaoh thinks that he's getting at this point in time. Right? So he's not going to negotiate and give, Pharaoh, or give Abraham the opportunity to go, no, no, we can't agree on terms. He just says, I'm Pharaoh. She's in my land. I'm taking her. Here's what I give in exchange. And it was a lot. It was very generous. <clears throat> In verses 17 through 20, then God plagues Pharaoh. And somehow, and here's another one of those places where the narrator gives us no further insight. How does Pharaoh know that this is the Lord? And what are the nature of the plagues? I mean, Pharaoh is, beyond any shadow of a doubt, a religious man. But he is not a God-fearing man. He doesn't have any knowledge of Jehovah. But in verse number 17, it is Jehovah who is plaguing him. And the plagues are great, and the plagues are directly tied to Sarah, Abraham's wife. And the question that he poses, if you recall, folks, in verse number 9, we talked, or verse number 18, we talked about this back when we talked about the incident with Cain, or with Ham and Noah. What is this that thou hast done unto me? That's the same construction that Noah knew what his son had done unto him. It, it doesn't necessarily imply a physical assault of some sort. What did you do? And so Pharaoh commands his men, verse number 20, concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. And from there Abraham returns to where he had begun, back to between Bethel and Ai, back to the altar, and once again he calls upon the name of the Lord. <clears throat> Which brings us then to this, in light of the story, what, what do we make of it? What, what, is, what is what, not necessarily singular, but what are the lessons from the story? And so let me just issue this caution at the outset. We're not really dealing extensively with Old Testament narratives per se. But it is very common when we read a story like this, an Old Testament narrative, to immediately conclude that the story is there so that we might extract the moral. Right? So that we read this passage and we come to the conclusion that the moral of the story is what? Don't lie. Right? The moral of the story is don't lie. And boy, that makes, right? And I'm not, 
I mean, if you're thinking the moral of the story is don't lie, I'm not trying to insult you because we're not supposed to lie. But let me just ask you a question, folks. If the moral of the story is don't lie, is the moral defensible? I mean, apart from the fact that we all know intuitively, and we of course know scripturally, that lying is wrong, what part of the story here defends the moral? What was Abraham's goal? To live. Did he live? Yes. What else happened as a result of Abraham's lie? He was enriched. He became a multimillionaire. And when he left Egypt, he left with all of his stuff. Chapter 13, verse number 2, Abram was very rich. Who made him rich? Pharaoh. So if we just come to the story, folks, and we go, well, you know, look, this is what he did, and he told a lie, and he shouldn't have told a lie, and he shouldn't have told a lie. But let's, let's, just a second, sir, let's, let's think very carefully, right? Let's think very honestly with ourselves. Would we be in any way tempted if $10 million could come to us through the telling of a lie? Would we be tempted to lie for $10 million? I mean, I know we all know that lying is wrong. But we also know that God forgives wrongdoing, right? And 10 million bucks is 10 million bucks. Come on, we're human beings. If, and maybe you don't think like that, but I think like that. Oh, this is absolutely before the law. So whatever is governing Abraham, it's not the law of Moses. Brother Paul. Yes. Well, I think that it is absolutely an integral part of the story. And, and that's one of the reasons that I just... And I, I think that most of us are biblically sophisticated enough that we don't just stop at the moral of the story is always tell the truth. Because there's just a lot more to this story, folks, than it's wrong to lie. And, and, if, and if, the point, the, if the main point of the story is that it's wrong to lie, I would propose to you that God would have arranged events in such a way that Abraham's lie really fell heavily upon his head so that we could go to the passage and go, look, these are the terrible things that happen to people who tell lies. Instead, we're kind of left with, you really shouldn't tell a lie, but Abraham came out pretty good as a result of telling the lie. He, he, he achieved his main goal, which was to spare his life, and he was enriched in the process. And in fact, folks, I would argue that if you just simply looked at human conduct, one man's behavior versus another man's behavior, that you would have to make the argument in this story, Pharaoh was the better man. Pharaoh did not in any way violate any moral precept that he could have envisioned. He didn't tell a lie. 
He didn't abuse his power. He didn't just take Sarah and go, I'm Pharaoh, I take what I want. He enriched Abraham. And I certainly think, folks, that built into the story, we'll get to this, built into the story is not only Jehovah's activity in plaguing Pharaoh, but in protecting Sarah. And so that this becomes an important part of understanding what the story really is about. So, so, so let me propose to you more than we should always tell the truth, which we should. And I would add, if we're going to go down that road, and there's a legitimate biblical place to go down that road, we want to expand upon you should always tell the truth because there's more to the story than that. Not only should you always tell the truth, you should never use the truth to be deceptive, which is what Abraham really did. Right? When he gets caught with his fingers in the cookie jar, right, he begins to make technical arguments. Well, you know, technically she is my sister. But he was telling that truth to cover up another truth. And it is entirely possible, folks, we all know this, to use the truth in such a way as to be deceptive all by itself. So that's, okay, so that's no good. That's dishonorable to the Lord. That's disobedient to what we clearly know. If Abraham didn't know it, we know that it is banned under the law of Moses, and we know that telling lies and bearing false witness is banned under the new covenant. So never is there permission to do that. But ultimately, I would propose to you that the story is about this. The story is tracking this. Are the promises of God really reliable? Are the promises of God really reliable? So let's, let's begin with, by, by making some note of things that perhaps would, we would overlook at first glance. Go back to Genesis chapter 12 for just a second. I realize we're there, but early. Genesis 12.1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Down to verse number 5. And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sikkim, or Shechem, unto the plain of Moreh, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And now, verse number 10, and there was a famine in the land. And there was a famine in the land. So as Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on called Faith of Our Father points out, to Abraham the land is both a promise and a problem. Here, I'm going to give you land. And there's nothing to eat in the land. And it is this kind of scenario, folks, where our faith is really tested. 
when on the one hand we have a promise and on the other hand we have a problem. And the problem and the promise seem to be in conflict. This is the land. I'm going to give you the land. And there's a famine in the land. And so, as always, the question becomes, will logic and human ingenuity save the day? Right? Abraham does. And look, and and this is one of the reasons, folks, I'm jumping ahead of myself. This is one of the reasons why I think it's critically important to read the story through to the next altar. Right? Because Abraham is a man of faith. He believed the Lord. He he left his land. He made a pilgrimage to the land of promise. I mean, as he's on his way to the land of promise, he encounters a problem. I have the land of promise, and there's nothing to eat. So I will solve the problem. We will go to Egypt. And we will anticipate the problem in Egypt. And the problem in Egypt will be the Egyptians may want you, so we will concoct a story that is designed to be deceptive, and we will solve the problem. This is not the last time that Abram does this. But there is, folks, a sense in which it is a pattern, a template for us that we frequently try to solve what we perceive to be the Lord's problems through human logic. Makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. Jump way ahead, if you would, please, to Genesis chapter 26. And verse number one. And there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and he said, and said, Go not down to Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Now the record doesn't say that Isaac sought the Lord, but the record does tell us that God intervened specifically before Isaac could make a bad decision there, which he did not do in this instance. There is no record of Abraham seeking the Lord about this. What should I do? I'm in the land of promise. And there's nothing to eat in the land of promise. And it's a very bad famine. What direction would you give me? And you know, folks, it may well have been that the Lord sent him to Egypt. He sent Jesus to Egypt. That's not the dilemma, right? The dilemma is not that he went to Egypt. The dilemma is, and again, the narrator, right, he just kind of maps it out for us, and he gives us two anchoring points. We begin with an altar, and we end with an altar, and we have Abram in between. Now, here's my proposition to you. In between, we have Abraham living as it is all too easy to live. As if going to church and worshiping is one thing and navigating the difficulties of life is something completely different. 
So we'll go to church and we'll worship. And then when we leave the altar, right? And when we leave the altar, then we're kind of on our own to figure out life's problems. There are lots of people who live like that, folks. There are lots of people who live like that. Who find it very difficult to bring the God they worship into the life they live in a real and substantive way. It's really challenging. I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm just saying it's one of the difficulties that we face. We go through life. We face myriad decisions and dilemmas. We make hundreds, if not thousands of decisions. And it's very easy to make them as if the Lord is at the altar and he isn't in any other place. Right? So one of the things that we learn, what does this event teach us about the promises of God? Is that his promises often follow strange pathways. I'm going to show you land. I'm going to give you that land. I'm going to make you a great nation in the land. We go to the land and there's nothing to eat in the land. The promises problem. And this promise problem scenario is where our faith is tested. That is where it is really put to the acid test. Will we live in light of the promises? And again, I think we can make the argument that Abraham needed to make some kind of a decision. There's no food in the land. He doesn't own much of the land. He's not been there long enough to have cultivated his own crops and grown his own food and established himself. He's got people to care for. Thirdly, folks, we learned that it is God's power that secures God's promises, not us. Not us in our problem solving. It is God and his power. And I would argue that on the basis of two things. Number one, verse number 17. <clears throat> right? One of those great mysteries. How did Pharaoh know? And again, I'm going off in complete and total speculation. But I think Pharaoh knew because God himself revealed it to him. I think God worked in such a way or spoke to Pharaoh in such a way that brought it, that there is absolutely no doubt in Pharaoh's mind. Not that he knew the Lord in a saving sense, but that he understood that the plagues were being visited upon him because he was Abraham's God. That guy whose wife you have locked away in your harem, he worships me. And I'm looking out for him. Somehow, that is what happened. And I would tie this again, folks, back, if you will, to chapter 12 and verse number 3. What is part of the promise? Right? I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. So that Abraham, in a very real way, becomes the pivot of cursing and blessing. And here is a man, right? He, he, he will make the same argument, the same argument we made repeatedly. I acted in the innocency and the integrity of my heart. I didn't do anything 
that anybody who knows Egypt knows I wouldn't have done. And then I think it is evidenced by the preservation of the purity of Sarah. Because folks, right, what is, what is built into the promise, right? What do we, you know, we, we've talked about this. We have, these, we have these testaments about Abraham that are given to us along the way. And one is, of course, that he is married to Sarah. And the other is that Sarah is barren. Now, what we know, right, I mean, being somewhat delicate, what we know, even if we didn't have science, what we know through the lens of Scripture, through the scriptural storytelling, is that that barrenness was on Sarah's part, not Abraham's part. Abraham will later go on to father other children by another wife. And Abraham is able to father a child by Hagar. So the barrenness is on Sarah's side. But nobody knows that in Abraham's world. Nobody has the capacity to go, well, the problem is with mom or the problem is with dad. They don't have children. So the question then becomes this, folks. What's going to happen to the promise if Pharaoh takes her to wife and has a physical relationship with her? And you see, there's the, there's the great peril in the whole thing is that what Abraham has apparently done is endanger the entire promise through his conduct. He's not just telling what some people might argue is a little white lie for the, self of, for the sake of self-preservation. What he is doing is jeopardizing the entire promise made to him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And who is going to rise up to remedy that? And the answer to that is the Lord. The Lord is going to secure his promise. And by the way, there are a number of, I mean, not a lot, but there are several of these purity, morality, physical relationship questions that come up in the book of Genesis that always have to be viewed in light of the Abrahamic covenant. Right? We're not just talking about a boy being attracted to a woman and there being some measure of immorality. We always have to read those stories and ask ourselves, what, what are the implications for the promise that God made for the promised seed? And it's going to be very difficult for there to be, right? I mean, we know, folks, again, because we, we live it in history on a day-to-day basis, and we read it in the text of the Scripture that Abraham's two sons, Ishmael, and Isaac have created no end to the dilemmas of the world. What if there had been a third son, a child through Pharaoh? I mean, that just would have, and Abram would not, of course, been the father to that, but Sarah would have a child. So there's all kinds of complications that are attached to this, and that's what the story really is about. It's about the promise of God. And the reality that sometimes human behaviors jeopardize the promise of God. But God will never allow his promises to be fully compromised. He will preserve his promise. He will always keep his word. 
Which brings me then to this. No excuse for Abraham. But I would suggest that chapter 13 verses 1 through 4 serve to remind us that people of faith, it's not an end simply because their faith lapses. That there is a remedy that is acceptable to the Lord. A remedy of repentance and forsaking our sin and seeking the Lord's forgiveness and receiving it. And so after this, Abram leaves Egypt and he goes right back to the altar and what does he do? He calls upon the name of the Lord. Now again, the narrator never tells us. I would not try to argue with this, but I would suspect that part of Abraham's formality, that's what's implied there in calling upon the Lord's name, the formality of his worship included some form of admission that he had done wrong in going to Egypt, that he had not handled that well. That's, that would just be my speculation. And, and from this story, by the way, just to preview, because we're, we're done very early, and so please credit me my time. All right? <clears throat> um, right? The next story will present Abraham and his faith also tested in a much more positive light which I think realistically, folks, tends to be, right? We wish it wasn't so, and growing in grace takes some of the rough edges off, but the people of God do tend to live, right? At times, intermittently in apparent failure of the God's promises, and at times in apparent obedience to God's promises. But that's another story. Okay, we're going to stop there. It is 1040, so I got five minutes back. That, that brings my debt down to about three hours, but... Uh, <clears throat> I will take it. We'll be back at 11 o'clock.